This is Truth Jihad Radio, deprogramming members of the cult of the blue pill since 2006. If you would like to support our efforts, please go to truthjihad.com and click on the subscribe at Substack link. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think that the most important, the most compelling was uh, was 9-11 itself. Welcome to the special live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, broadcasting on various internet networks since 2006, currently on Revolution.Radio, the greatest in listener-sponsored free speech networks. Please support Revolution.Radio any way you can, and you can always support me by subscribing to my Substack by way of the TruthJihad.com website. Just click on the Substack button there, and... Boy, we have a great show coming up tonight with two guests, but who are both very articulate, very outspoken, and coming from very different places. In the second hour, philosophy and humanities teacher Thaddeus Kaczynski comes on. He's the author of the great book, Modernity as Apocalypse, Sacred Nihilism, and the Counterfeits of Logos. Thaddeus Kaczynski is a Catholic who takes a kind of traditional Catholic position on a lot of issues, and he has some incredibly strong words to say about COVID-19 and the spiritual dimensions of the social crisis that we're going through right now. In the first hour, coming from uh, a very different perspective, Radia Gleiss is the author of a really provocative and lively new book called The Followers, Holy Hell and the Disciples of Narcissistic Leaders, How My Years in a Notorious Cult Parallel Today's Cultural Mania. And I think she's onto something. The current cultural situation is sort of like not just maybe one cult, but a couple of cults at each other's throats. And uh, uh, the uh, Trump cult in particular is way over the top. Personally, I think some of the uh, the other side is over the top, too. But we'll get into that uh, with Radia Gleis. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. Radia, are you on the line? Hello, Radia. Come in. <laughs> Maybe I'm not pronouncing it right, and that's why she's not answering. Oh, that's that's unlikely. Uh, hello, Radia. Are you there? Well, I'm not hearing her, so let's see if I can get a message to my trusty studio sidekick here. I do see a little symbol that would sus- it makes me suspect that she should be on the line. So I will ask my studio sidekick, is she there? Um as the icon would indicate that she is, but I'm not hearing anything. Well, that's uh, that's an amazing uh, disappearing act. Hopefully, we'll get this straightened out. Somebody said hello. Okay. Nobody's uh, saying hello now. Odd. Maybe try again. Maybe I'm on hold. Who knows? Anyway, uh, her book is is quite uh, quite interesting. You know, it's, it parallels uh, this film 
Okay, I just I just heard that she may be on now. Hello, uh, is this Ravia? Or Radhia? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. My, my uh, sometimes my wife uh, goes under the name of the uh, Sufi uh, figure Rabia, so I assume that maybe Radhia uh, is pronounced kind of like that. Hmm, how odd. I'm uh, I'm not hearing anything. Well, uh, it's who knows. Uh, I don't think the NSA doesn't want me to interview her. There's no reason I can think of why that would be the case. Uh, maybe somebody from her ex-cult doesn't want me to interview her. Apparently there was some pushback. Okay, hello to the 214 area code. We have someone calling in from the 214 area code, and I think that's the correct number. Hello. She left? Hmm. That's odd. Okay, maybe call back. Okay, we'll try one more time, uh, and I'll send her an email. Okay, let's see what we can do here to get, to bring up tonight's guest. I hate uh, doing this show as a monologue when I hadn't planned oh. to do a monologue, or even if I had planned to do a monologue. Um, hello okay. there. Uh, hello. I'm look, looking for uh, Radia. Is... Well, uh, I hate to break this to you. Uh, you've reached uh this number in error uh but this is lark kevin yes oh okay uh <laughs> is this thaddeus no it's not this is lark in texas oh lark okay well it's good to hear you lark uh <laughs> well but, yeah uh, so we, here, we got let, something crossed over there <laughs> yeah, here let me let me give. Uh, I got I got you. You can stay on for a moment here. I think I must have given uh, my trusty studio assistant, Mister Rowe, the wrong phone number. Somehow I got your number mixed up with that of Radia Gleis. So I just sent the correct number over to him. And uh, unless you want to talk about your uh, twenty-five years in a crazy cult, well, I can I could chat with you for a few minutes. No problem until you get your guest on. Not that's not a problem at all. Okay, yeah. Well, it's, it's going to be an interesting show here because we've got uh, these two totally different perspectives. Radia Gleis got out of the uh, that that Buddha field cult that they made the film Holy Hell about. Hello. Oh, there she is. Hello, Radia. I'm sorry, I got, I called the wrong number, uh, but we got the correct one finally. So, hey, welcome to Truth Jihad Radio. Hey, thank you. How are you? I'm doing I'm, well. I'm trying to get on Skype. I don't know what was going on there, but. Uh... I, I was waiting for you on Skype. Oh, okay. Sorry about the glitch. Yeah, no problem, Kevin. I'm I'm happy to we finally made the connection. Yeah, well, you're coming through loud and clear, and your book certainly cl- comes through loud and clear too. Uh, it, you're not pulling any punches. You're kind of a a truth jihadi after my own heart in the sense that you're saying calling it exactly the way you see it in uh, no uncertain terms. Yes, yes. Have you had a chance to look at the book? Yes, I actually did read it, and uh, I actually enjoyed it quite a lot. Parts of it oh, had me uh, grumbling and, and pulling my hair out, but a lot of it had me sort of cheering, and overall it was quite enthralling and a really good read, so thank you. Oh, good. I'm very glad to hear that. Thank you. Yeah, so <laughs> let, let's let's introduce it uh, for the listeners. Uh, maybe some of the listeners heard about the documentary film Holy Hell about this Buddha field cult that you were in, uh, but probably a lot of others didn't. So give us a very brief rundown about how you got involved with that group. 
And what happened along the lines was, you know, he was a, he was a malignant narcissist. And um, so what better environment than a people, than a group of people that were serious seekers. I mean, very, very devoted and devoted originally to the techniques. And he used to say, connect to God's love. But after a while, he started to say, connect to my love. Um, and it used to be all about the meditation techniques. But after a few years, that eroded and it became more of a focus on him. So that's where it sort of spiraled down into holy hell. <laughs> yeah, well, that's interesting. You know, I, I've, I've been a, a Muslim since 1993 and mm -hmm. uh, the kind of critique of Christianity is precisely that the Christians make the mistake of worshiping Jesus, uh, the messenger, rather than attending to the message. Uh, and, exactly, uh, and that's why I left Catholicism because because I didn't, I wasn't into deities, um, whether it would be Buddha or Jesus or anyone. That didn't, that wasn't logical to my young mind. I thought, you know. Basically, I want what he's having, you know, and so the goal was to uh, find it within, not to worship without, you know. Well, your description of your uh, belief in God that you have at the end of the book during your uh, discussion of the Q&A questions you get at like yeah. at the screenings of Holy Hell, where you describe, you know, I say, do you still believe in God? And your description there of how you believe in God uh, struck me as very real, uh, true, and, and quite beautifully expressed, uh, and, and also very interesting that uh, your search for God that led you through this cult uh, left you in a place that seems pretty spiritually sensible. Uh, well, that's beautiful of you to notice that, Kevin, because a lot of people that interview me, they haven't gotten to the end of the book yet, and, and I... And I tell people, you know, when I'm being interviewed, I say, look, you know, I'm going to take you down this long journey. But at the end, you know, I'm going to I'm going to give you something at the end. I'm not going to just leave you hanging. Um, and so that's really beautiful that you recognize that those last couple of chapters where I, I really wrap it up. I have spent. Well, I just turned 68 on Tuesday and. You know, I, I obviously didn't take the, the regular beaten path. Um, so from the time I was about 14 to today, I have been on a contemplative, in a contemplative life and in a, in a much, much different life than your average person. So I hope at the end of that whole journey that I could, you know, make lemon out, lemonade out of lemons. Um, because, you know, it, it was an interesting thing because the community was still involved in the practice. That's what it was about. It was about the practice and it was also about the community more than him. Um, but others like that's more from the elders point of view, but from the generations that came in behind us, they didn't get the original teachings. So they kind of, they saw what they thought they saw. And they just, you know, sort of duplicated it. And that's where that's where it really fed this 
pathological narcissist who who took control and, and literally stopped giving the, the meditation techniques for 18 years. He left these people hanging with these dangling carrots uh, so that he could feed his narcissism. And that's the tragedy is that they really missed all these, all these people missed the original thing, you know, the original uh, devotion and the original aspiration. Well, there's a weird kind of paradox in uh, seeking closeness to God uh, through blowing off your ego. Um, the Sufis talk about the annihilation of the ego or fana, and then right. this malignant narcissism of the cult leader whose ego is overblown to fantastic proportions, sort of like Trump's ego. And so yeah. how, how can one resolve this complete blowing off of the ego, which is the whole goal of the whole project, and then this huge inflation of the ego of the person at the center of it all. And this isn't just your cult. I mean, even in Sufism, there are cases yeah. where the Sufi leaders have rivaled with each other to, to say, my, I've blown off my ego more than you have. No, I have, <laughs> which uh, seems rather paradoxical. So maybe you could reflect exactly. a little bit on that weirdness. Yeah. And, you know, we also, Kevin, we studied uh, Sufism Hinduism, Buddhism, we studied all the isms in lots, mostly Middle Eastern uh, or Asian. Um, so I'm really familiar with, and we really did delve into all of those teachers. And uh, we loved what was being said. You know, we, we read Hafiz and, you know, and, and all these just wonderful Sufi, you know, enlightened beings. And so we were trying to follow those original teachings. But as you say, Jaime just went totally off the deep end. And so, you know, by the time uh, in 1995, by 1995, I had pretty much soured as far as my interest in him. Um, but I didn't leave until 2006. And the reason why, basically, was the community, for number one. There was a lot of reasons, which I do go into in the book, but it was the community. Uh, we were still practicing these, these beautiful disciplines of dropping the ego. So everyone was dropping the ego except for the teacher, <laughs> you know. And there is also in all societies, you start out with a, with a good intention, and then all societies, whether ours, which was 150 or 150 million, um, there starts to be a hierarchy. And when that hierarchy begins and, you know, it's it sort of uh, teacher's aides and those would be the initiates. And then it goes down from there, aspirants and, and newbies. And so as those hierarchies develop, a new kind of ego develops along with it. And as I do mention, um, we jump from one ego to a spiritual ego, which in my opinion is a lot, a lot more dangerous because a spiritual ego can be so um, undefinable. It can be so nebulous that, that you can be caught up in your own illusion of who you are as a, as a being, you know, and, and you can't, uh, you, you'll fall down that rabbit hole pretty deeply. And that was in retrospect of looking at my life and what my intention was 
and what I had become, what I had become and what everybody else had become. I mean, we refer to ourselves as holy company, for Christ's sakes. And, um, <laughs> and, and it, in the beginning, there was a reason for that. But what it did is it created this, this idea of exceptionalism. So now you're in the trap of spiritual ego, which is a very dangerous place to be. And I had a, I had a person, as a matter of fact, today, I had a, this was a Christian, obviously, who um, got into a fight with me, not inadvertently. She just, you know, I was in the pharmacy and she was asking me questions. Next thing you know, we're down a rabbit hole. And her only answer is, well, I'm going to pray for you, you know. Now, real prayer, you, you don't use that as a weapon. You know, that was a weapon to me. That was a very condescending statement of, well, you're pathetic, so I'm going to pay, pray for you. And this is what spiritualism does. You know, we get on these exceptional planes where we really think we are the beginning and end all and that we have that direct connection to God. And anyone who may be um, counter to what you think or feel, you just take on this sort of condescending uh, attitude towards anyone who isn't on your train. And that's kind of very, very dangerous. And I get it, Kevin. I get it. I was there, you know. And that's kind of what my book is about, is I'm not standing there pointing fingers. I'm pointing three fingers back to me. You know, what I'm hoping is that people will take my story in the comfort of their own home without, you know, going through what I had to do to, you know, experience what I experienced. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I can actually kind of relate to that problem of the spiritual ego. In fact, here, let me give you a demonstration right now. Uh, okay, so since, um, well, even before 9-11, uh, ha having come to Islam in, in the early 90s and then studying it, uh, I had a problem with the gross misconceptions that are constantly out there. And then post 9-11, uh, it just got completely crazy, and you know, I, I oh my PhD is in is in that field, and so mm -hmm. I find myself constantly running into these misconceptions. I ended up working. You know, I now have a nonprofit that's devoted to supposedly correcting misconceptions about Islam. So to mm -hmm. demonstrate uh, in in your book, I found a couple of things extremely annoying, and you know, one was the uh, pejorative use of Sharia law, which is just as silly as pejoratively talking about the Napoleonic Code or English common law, which is the basis of our kind of law. And then you you said about the Quran that it takes away the freedom of belief from all humanity and relegates those who disbelieve in Islam to hell, uh, mis misquoting a particular ayah for that, that it calls the non-Muslims filthy, untouchable, and impure, uh, and orders its followers to fight the unbelievers until there's no other religion except Islam. And those, these, this is coming right out of like David Horowitz and these Zionist-funded um, Islam hate groups that were created by the 9-11 false flag deliberately to go out and murder nearly 30 million Muslims, which is about the, the death toll, according to Dr. Gideon Palya. So my spiritual ego, whatever, gets all uh, ruffled when I keep hearing these kinds of Islamophobic statements in your book and from Trump, who is the ostensible target of your book, and sort of everybody uh, somehow 9-11 implanted this virus deep in people's minds and it seems like it's impossible to eradicate it. 
So, okay, so first of all, let's be clear in that particular chapter, which is entitled, what is it called? It's complicated. Um, Let's be clear. I did not say that. This is what is being repeated and quoted. So the references are in the in the uh, thing, and I, I I referenced out of out of is that not out of the Quran? Is that a mistake? Yeah, those those are, are horrific mistranslations. And you know, just to give you the first one, the uh, let's see the the. وَالَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا وَكَذَّبُوا بِآيَاتِنَا أُولَئِكَ أَصْحَابُ الْجَحِيمِ which says the the as to the ungrateful truth concealers uh, and those who um, deny the deny the truth of our signs uh, they are the companions of hellfire would be one way of of translating it that certainly does not uh, take away freedom of belief for all humanity. Indeed, uh, the Quranic verse, La ikraha fiddin, says that there's no compulsion in religion. And that's why in virtually all Islamic cultures, with a few exceptions, but basically virtually the entire history of Islam is one of Islamic cultures having huge minority non-Muslim communities, often majority, or even if they're minority, often they're the most powerful community in that polity. Uh, for instance, you know, in the uh, old uh, Ottoman Empire, uh, various kinds of Protestants and other dissidents from the West fled uh, to the Ottoman lands to take advantage of the freedom of religion that is found in virtually all and always has been found in virtually all Islamic uh, polities. OK, <laughs> that's sort of, you know, that's that's fine. The, the, the book is not about Islam. It's, you know, that's like one about two sentences talking about some particular may not be certainly what you follow. And there'd probably be a lot of Christians who wouldn't like what I said in there either about what the Bible says. Um, the point is of that is how are we defining things? Because that whole chapter is about definitions, you know? So we have such, I mean, even the word cult, as I really sort of try and humorously take you, that's actually one of my more humorous chapters, um, take you through all of those definitions. And they're absurd. They're as absurd as as the uh, Webster Dictionary Putting the correlation of um, the cult of Satan and the and voodoo cult mixed in there with everything else, so you know it's it's like everything is relative, very very relative. And when we use these words, we banter these words around. Um, this is what gets us all in trouble. Um, so the word cult, for example, well, that's a how do we define that? And what is the difference between a cult and a religion, which is what that what that chapter is all about? Um, it has to do, first of all, first, some of the characteristics, in my opinion, of cult is you've got either Socratic or non-Socratic teaching. So when, when you're, and Socratic being that you lay out an idea and we talk about it and we argue about it and we walk away with our own conclusions, you question it, etc. Um, Non-Socratic would be where there is no question. This is it. This is the rules. This is emphatic. This is the law. And uh, that's to be 
taken with a huge consideration um, because now, whether it is any religion on any side of the fence, um, then it starts to get dogmatic. And I'm not all about dogma. I'm just, as a matter of fact, very much against dogma. Because I think it is the underlining root with identities. I am this, which I said in my later chapters. As soon as we have identities, I am a Christian, I am an Islam, I am a Jew, I am white, I am black, I am, you know, American, I am Asian, I am this and that. As long as we have identities, we will never have peace on earth, ever. Mm -hmm. And we're sure we don't have peace in America. We don't have peace in America right now, partly because of this clash of identity politics. And I wonder if we could take your analysis sort of up one more level. I think, you know, your analysis of the way the country has uh, kind of devolved uh, in, in this Trump and post-Trump era is, is pretty accurate in some respects. Uh, but I, I wonder if that clash sort of between, you know, the, the, the pro-Trump cult and the anti-Trump cult uh, it, which you you kind of side with the anti-Trump cult for the most part more than I do, but I think the whole thing may have been engineered just as the so-called political left was hijacked in about 1970 and steered towards identity politics by the billionaires who had specifically laid out their program. When David Rockefeller founded the Trilateral Commission, he said there's been an excess of democracy in the 60s, and part of what he meant was an excess of economic democracy, and we need to stop that. And suddenly a whole series of policy changes happened, and, and one of them was that they stopped funding uh, cri- economic critics on the left, and they started funding feminists and sort of uh, various minority group identity politics people, especially you know gay rights and gender weirdness groups. And all that money from the billionaires funded all of those movements, and the left then embraced them. And so today we have a situation where the billionaires can steal and rob us blind as we fight amongst ourselves over these identity politics issues. And I, I think your, your book never quite got to that analysis. So let me, I'm curious about what you think about that. Well, one of the reasons why I started all the way back in the 60s and 70s is because I, especially being in Los Angeles, I was in the heart of the cultural movements that were happening. And much of them were happening on the coastal, especially Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, uh, the big cities, and but especially in Los Angeles. And so these, these cultural shifts were dramatic. I was in the heart, in the middle of the civil rights, gay rights, women's rights. And I would say on both sides, I think you're absolutely right. The reason why I start way back then is because the Trump phenomenon has nothing to do with Trump. Um, he, he is uh, he's a symptom, basically, of a long, good 40 years of a, this schism in America. And that's why I start way, way back when I was a child or you know, a teenager or whatever, um, because we we were starting to oh, be, I want to say, be supported one way or the other, good, bad, or indifferent, by factions that were taking advantage of the identity. So if it was on the left, there would be the elite supporting the left, and if it was on the right, there would be 
the elites supporting the right. And, uh, you know, I, <laughs> there's so much to write, honestly, Kevin. When I, when I wrote this, my editor was going, okay, land the plane, Alice. You know, and I said, but what about, you know, <laughs> and I, and I got to write about, you know, and she said, look, this, there can always be other books. There can be articles. You know, if you don't get this out, you never will. And I've had people already complain that the book is too long. But, you know, all of these things are to be thought of and, and talked about. I'm working on a book right now um, called Harder to Fall. And it's basically about the addiction of power and money and how we will, because of that addiction, sell our soul. Um, and when we look around at the atrocities or who is whatever, whatever they're, whatever they're supporting, politically and otherwise, politically, socially, communication and otherwise, you can go up the chain. And it's not Democrats or Republicans, it's the elites. Yeah. And so so basically that's a whole nother book. You know? <laughs> okay. I can't wait to see it. Right now. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> you know? You know, another, another aspect of your book that I thought was, was great was, you know, you at times as I was reading it, I was feeling a little bit annoyed that you were sort of lapsing into too much of a sort of a standard mainstream media sort of Democratic Party worldview um, on steroids at times. But then you rise above it a number of times as well with your analysis of things like the deep state. Like, you know, at first you're you're dissing conspiracy theories. Of course, the term conspiracy theory was invented by the CIA to disparage the honest investigators of the JFK coup d'etat. Uh, in any case, so you sort of disparage the term conspiracy theories, talking about things like QAnon and, and that nonsense. Um, but then you talk about the deep state and say, it does, it, does it exist apparently? Is it what Trump or the Q clan are referring to? No, the term was first used in a 2007 book, The Road to 9-11, Wealth, Empire, and the Future of America by Peter Dale Scott. So uh, I, that shows me that, you know, you are one step ahead of the standard Democratic Party mainstream media crowd in what you're allowed to say. So you're not really allowed to mention Peter Dale Scott and particularly that book in yeah. you know, if you're, you're working for the mainstream. And that leads me to wonder, uh, have you if you've read that book and to what extent you've looked into the uh, controversy about what really happened on 9-11? The, the first answer is portions of it, and the second answer is sure. <laughs> yes, I have. Bravo. And again, you know, you, you know, sure, you can have um, – and, and again, I know I'm leaning towards the left, but, but not to be mistaken, I don't take any of those identities, and that's the problem. You know, I – I try, although it's very, very difficult with the nature of this book to not appear that way. But as I said in my introduction, this is not about policy. This is about um, the influence of a, uh, the, the danger of a narcissist. So, you know, somebody said to me uh, in a, uh, an interview recently, they said, well, what about the cult of Obama? Okay, well, there was no cult of Obama. There was no cult of Bush. There was no cult of Reagan. We're talking about a phenomenon that is really in, unique in America. Not to say that there weren't narcissists. Everybody's got a little narcissism in them. Everybody. Well, most of those politicians have a lot of it. I mean, look, look at Clinton and his it. sexual predation okay. and so on. 
Yes, a lot of it. And so the celebrities, anyone who's going to put themselves in front of hundreds of thousands of people has got to have at least a little bit of narcissism to be able to have the self, you know, the the courage to even do that. Um, There's a very big difference between the the mental disorder, uh, malignant narcissism and sociopathy, and uh, people who have a narcissistic tendency. So I really, really wanted people to be careful of these words. Oh, you're in a cult. Okay, and that's why I did, you know, what is it called? Well, that's complicated. Um, because they become weapons. Oh, you're just brainwashed. Boom, we stopped the conversation right there. Um, so these become weapons instead of really defining, well, what does that mean? And I don't really know. You know, I had a lot of, uh, I had a lot of my friends who have read my book said, a lot of friends that were in the Buddha field, they said, you know, I'm really glad that you clarified some of those terms because, you know, when, when people want to accuse me of being brainwashed or that I, that I was somehow, you know, not conscious or making conscious choices, that's really nonsense. I mean, the definition of brainwash is that you are radicalized either through uh, imprisonment or torture. Okay. None of us were. And so, these early indoctrinations, and they can start as children. This is why I started back when I was a child. Um, we grow up, and especially in times of strife, either economic or certainly we're in the middle of a pandemic or whatever, all of these things going on, we, we, we seek out our herd, you know, and we seek out the familiar. And usually it's rooted from long-term indoctrination. And so we pick out these words. I just had uh, somebody ask me to write an article on the dangers of groupthink, which was just published, and it's on my website. And I tried. I was very... I was very challenged, as a matter of fact, in the second paragraph, I said I was, when I was asked to write this article, I was faced with the challenge of confronting your group think. <laughs> and I'm going to try, I'm going to ask my reader to, to go with me down this rabbit hole. And I, I know that I'm going to, if you've got this group think over here, you're going to see this word or this phrase, and you're going to get upregulated and probably won't read any further. If you're in this group, if you're in the opposite team, you're either going to like what I'm saying or whatever. And I said, therein lies the rub. Because I'm, I'm writing about the very thing, the very nature of depending on where you hail, right? And so I, I'm like going, be patient and keep going with me because we, we have to get out of this groupthink model that all of us are in, all of us. So we go back to the media and mainstream media, which – it's basic echo chambers. We know this, and everybody has theirs. I have my special echo chambers. I'm fully aware of it, and others have theirs. And this is kind of where we are facing this hybrid, a dangerous hybrid of manipulation of groupthink through the Internet, uh, through mainstream media, and unlike Back in my day when it was, you know, you had, if you got the news, it was about a half an hour in the evening and it was usually, okay, here's what's going on and that's it. Uh, But right now, mainstream media is faced with a 24-hour cycle 
of which they have to literally just regurgitate crap all day and pull in their opinions and pull in their pundits and all of that. And this is, this is how these echo chambers reinforce groupthink. So in times of struggle, like right now, we will take our corners, you know, and we'll find the familiar, especially, mostly, it's the way we were raised, the way we grew up. We'll find those safe little herds that we can glom onto, and then we can turn around and point to all of those other people, you know, and this is where we are, and I think we're in a huge crisis right now, and I'm not blaming the leader at all. This is why... When I, when I was first writing this book, Kevin, the, the working title was Duped. And as I started uh, developing my thought process, I thought, wait a minute, this doesn't have anything to do with the leader. Yes, there was misinformation and manipulation, no question about it. But this is about the followers. This is about me. This is about us and us feeding that narcissist. Um, the, the reason why I'm, this is a clarion call, this book, because the particular person in mind, um, is incurable, including so is the leader of my group. Uh, malignant narcissists are incurable, uh, and they have such an insatiable appetite for self-aggrandizement that they will do anything, including, like my kamikazes, provoke murder, or suicide. Um, so it's kind of, you know, it's we're in a very dangerous place right now, and I, I don't know where it's going to go. I'm hoping, I'm hoping uh, at the end that we can um, raise our consciousness to mm-hmm. a point, Amen. you know, to a point of, yeah, where I was saying at the end, you know, when, <laughs> when you think that you are an individual, please, <laughs> You know, from a frequency standpoint, you are all things. You know, you are that which you want to call God, the universe, etc. So I, I am hoping that we will rise our con- raise our consciousness to that point where the labels, I am this, I am Christian, I am Islam, I am white, I am black, I am, I am, I am, starts to drop away and we start to see who we really are. Because you are me, and I am you, you know? Mm -hmm. And you are you experiencing your your experience through Kevin's. And I am experiencing my experience, my God, my universal self, through Radia, you know? And, And there's nothing wrong with that. It's like you share with me, I share with you, and if we can have important, intelligent conversations... We can go. Oh, hey, you know that that that, that may be something that we can come together on. You know. Yeah, well, I I found actually that oddly enough, uh, you know, I I've I don't really identify with these groupthink bubbles. The big you know groupthink bubbles right now. The big ones are of course sort of the the conservative pro-Trump bubble and then the uh, strong anti-Trump bubble. Uh, at neither of those really appeal to me very much. But interestingly enough, I've actually had uh, really a little le- less of a problem with my my crazy pro-Trump friend, uh, <laughs> Rolf, you know who I'm talking about, uh, <laughs> than 
my uh, extreme sort of uh, people on the anti-Trump side who were basically kind of, you know, believing the New York Times and MSNBC and Washington Post, those people uh, are almost strike me as sort of more rigid than than Rolf, the Trump fanboy. Uh, and I've insulted Rolf and, and basically, you know, called him seven varieties of cult follower and, you know, some some pre- pretty harsh things because he deserves it. Right. Uh, but he's he he kind of shrugs it off. It's all water off a duck's back. And he just keeps yapping his insane Trump fanboy rant at me and I can still be friends with him. But with some of these folks on the other side, it's actually harder, believe it or not. And, and I sort of wonder, is there more da- which which side is really more dangerous? You know, on the Trump side, it looks like uh, some kind of incipient uh, cult of personality based fascism around a narcissistic sociopath. Yeah, you're right. It does. But on the other <laughs> side, we're getting we're getting crushed. We're getting censored. Yeah, yeah. Well, I like I, I've I've been repeatedly censored and deplatformed. Like most recently, I got my second YouTube strike because I interviewed a guest, Dr. E. Michael Jones, and during the course of a one-hour interview, the question of like the January sixth insurrection thing came up, and then he said something like, uh, "Well, uh, there probably was election fraud," and for that one statement, which I actually pushed back on. Uh, my YouTube channel was frozen and I can't do shows for two weeks. And if I get one more strike, uh, 10,000 hours of, of video disappear forever. So uh, I, the censorship is all coming from the left. Most of the violence is coming from the left. When the Proud Boys fight so-called Antifa, it's actually so-called Antifa that starts the fight nine times out of 10. And that you don't and if you actually look at the details of these events, you fit, you see that. And so I understand why some of the conservative people are upset, because in so many ways, their picture of reality is not getting its due. And they, they, I think the danger of fascism or totalitarianism or authoritarianism may be greater from that direction. Well, that's interesting. I don't agree with it. But, uh, but you know, I think that... The, I think the number one factor on both sides is that four-letter word, fear. And um, when we have that and when fear is exacerbated within the communication system, when it is ignited in in either side, uh, we have a tendency to be reactive. Um, And so that's what you're seeing is just reaction um so i I, who knows i don't know know. transpose it like if you think about some of these things and you sort of transpose like the the identity factor in some of these actual incidents uh you can maybe you can better understand how outrageous they are like imagine that if youtube basically the de facto you know monopolist of that kind of communication uh blacklisted you and destroyed your life's work in video um, because you said that the election wasn't stolen and that you didn't you disagreed with the January 6th protesters or imagine that Kyle Rittenhouse were black and that he were going to protect black businesses from a racist white mob and did exactly everything that he did just flip the identities and then look at the details of what he did and now imagine he's black if you can do that and, and do this consistently across a lot of these incidents I think 
that you can see why the conservative side is so outraged. Well, I do see why they're outraged. Um, I, 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 and in my, from my opinion, it, it really is the, uh, the status in our society. We, what, what is happening and what started happening, especially in the 60s and 70s, is the white Christian male is being displaced. And I can understand why that would be a very terrifying thing to experience. And I would, if I were them, I would fight it too. Mm-hmm. But, well, that's, you know, that's great that you can see that. that yeah. Well, you know, and here's the thing. This is interesting. And, I'll, and just on that note, um, I've asked myself, Okay, Radia. So here's your whole premise on a narcissist, a, a malignant narcissist being a leader. And it, let's just say that the malignant narcissist in question was Joe Biden. Would you still write this book? <laughs> and honestly, Kevin, I can't answer that. And, and really how, how about Hunter Biden, who obviously has gone through phases of extreme uh, malignant narcissism type of behavior? The media conspired to completely cover up that undoubtedly authentic laptop full of evidence of his crimes because the media thought that Trump was so dangerous that the truth about that couldn't be told. Well, you use words like authentic and real and whatever, and that's just, I mean, and we can go back and forth. Well, that was disproven, blah, blah, blah. We can go back and forth like that. Oh, I don't think we real. can anymore. I think, I think as of like a couple of weeks ago, it's been pretty well admitted that it's authentic. Yeah. Okay. There's, there's so many things on both sides that you could say is authentic that we might as well just leave that on the table. I'm just saying, okay, supposing, let me be, let me be real with myself. If the characteristics were the same, because Biden Biden's son isn't in the position of power. So I'm really, I, I couldn't care less about that, honestly. Right, but but see, if Trump, if Trump's United... son had done that, the media would have splattered it all over the front pages like crazy, and it would have uh, taken away a couple of percentage points and changed the election. I, I, I get, are you kidding? Are you kidding? There, what Trump has done that the media has been, you know, absolutely blasting since day one, it still has not changed the thought one iota. You've got your well, well, not not among the the Kool Aid drinkers, but 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 among the undecideds. So okay, that's just you know all you're doing is is putting a pejorative epithet on it on somebody that you don't agree with. That doesn't help. That doesn't help at all. So my going back to my original analysis of narcissistic leaders and their their danger. Would I have written this book if, let's just say, that the leader in question was on my side or giving me what I thought I wanted, right? Um, Would I have written this book? And quite honestly, and I'm being very honest, I don't know. I don't know. Because here's what happens, and here's what I saw with our relationship with our teacher. And this is what a narcissist does. Um. You know, first of all, Trump was a Democrat his whole freaking life until he found a group that, that 
that could hail him. So all of a sudden, he changed his policy. He doesn't have a policy. Narcissists don't have policies. They will go along, and they find, they find their group, and they figure out what they want, and then they give them the illusion of giving that. So there's a feedback loop with the followers. The followers, in return, thinking that they're getting what they want, will give them adulation and praise and gratitude. And so they'll give them more. And it goes back and forth from yes. leader to follower. And so you're, you're feeding this pathology from both sides until, and, and what happened in my group, which was an interesting observation, is there, there is always, whether it's a small group or a, a nation, there is always a hierarchy. And that hierarchy uh, in our group, it started with, you know, him as the leader, and then his immediate entourage, and these were the ones that were behind closed doors. These were the ones that knew what was going on. These were the ones that kept their mouth shut and didn't tell anybody that there was abuse going on and that there was fraud going on and deceit going on. So then the next tier, which in our case was the initiatives, uh, the initiates, and the initiates were the ones that were special because we were initiated, and that was the goal, right? So now we have a dangling carrot, a, a power play, and we did. We play. You, it's it's a human nature. It is. I hate to say it. It's not. It's not good or bad or right or wrong. It is human nature. So the leader puts. The the tiers gives their you know their immediate next tier they give them power, and below that they give them power, and that power starts to become you know subjugation. Inadvertently, you're not you're you're a good person. You're not thinking that way, but that's what happens. It probably happens in governments and corporations too. Robert probably. Robert Hare wrote in Snakes and Suits about that. Yeah. Sure. I mean, not probably. We know that that happens. It happens all the time. So, you know, like, what do you do with that? I had somebody uh, I was interviewed the other day and they asked me, how do we get out of this? And I said, the only thing that I can tell you is how we got out of the, the group in Austin. Okay. And, and, and you have about a minute and a half to, to tell us. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, then read the book. <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> That's the short version. It's a little read. longer, but it, but it's getting it's getting the tears to finally come forward and tell the truth. You know, because information, whether it's through the media, whether it's wherever it's coming from, just like in our case uh, through the email, information is not going to do it because the person's going to say, "Oh, that's fake news," right? And the believers will believe that. It's only when the leaders above say, yep, we, we, we've been lying to you. It's all a lie. That is what broke up the Buddha field in a wow. matter you know, that, of a week. That's what we need. And, you know, we need some kind of American glasnost and perestroika where the real leaders, the deep state that Peter Dale Scott talks about, says, okay, we're going to clear up this whole Trump problem once and for all. Here's the truth about what's really been going on. And then we get the truth about 9-11, JFK, and all of the other kinds of issues that we like to talk about on this show. I think that's part of what's driven the Trump phenomenon is the, just the, the monstrous lies that pass for mainstream discourse uh, that the uh, 
pow- powerful folks behind our oligarchy have found more convenient to ignore and just allow to stand rather than uh, revealing the truth. And But that's another topic, and <laughs> you have my other books to write, and so do I. So thank you so much, Radia Gleis. It's been a wonderful conversation, and I really enjoyed reading your book. It's incredibly lively and provocative. I recommend it to people of all shades of opinion. Uh, followers, holy hell, and the disciples of narcissistic leaders. How my years in a notorious cult parallel today's cultural mania. So, thank you so and much. God bless. Have a great work. And I will say, okay, back in the next hour with Daniel Zinsky.